Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Richard, do you remember the great Hollywood screenwriter William Goldman? Yeah, he wrote The Princess Bride and the script for All the President's Men, I think. Right, and many others. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was another classic. And he was kind of a guru to filmmakers. Uh, In fact, I used to work with him when I edited a movie magazine. And everybody in the industry remembers his motto, nobody knows anything. He meant that nobody can predict which movies are going to succeed. Or much of anything else. So it's a good lesson in humility. Today, we're going to look at how much all of us didn't know about the coronavirus when it first hit and how much we've learned since. Coronavirus surprise, our take. You and I, Jim. It sounds like a dessert. I'm not sure it's very appetizing. (laughs) It's now becoming clear, and it's something we didn't know in March, that COVID-19 is the worst crisis to face us since World War II. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, we did our first How Do We Fix It episode on the coronavirus epidemic way back at the beginning of February. I guess we were ahead of the curve, Jim. But if you go back and actually listen to episode 240 right now with epidemiologist Kylie Carville, it's pretty clear there were things she didn't know. I mean, for instance, she was on the fence about how likely it was that the coronavirus outbreak would grow into a global pandemic. And she was in good company. Many experts at the time believed we'd be able to stop this epidemic from spreading before it really turned into a global pandemic. It kind of reminds me of that old phrase about wartime, the fog of war. So let's review some of the surprises of the pandemic and and maybe go out on a limb with a few predictions as well. Yeah. So first up for me is just... How contagious is the coronavirus? So many of the initial assumptions turned out to be way too optimistic on that. So I guess lesson one for me is the early assurances, many of them turned out to be false. We heard things like New York Mayor de Blasio's health administrator saying that you can't catch it on the subway. A lot of assumptions were that it would be more like the flu, mostly passed kind of hand to hand, doorknobs, elevator buttons. And that certainly is a risk. But then we later were started to learn that it's actually also passes through the air a lot more readily than anyone had thought or hoped. 
And this is surprising and also fascinating how coronavirus is spread. You're much more likely to get it in enclosed spaces from people who you've spent a little bit of time with, right, Jim? That's right. Yeah. So there were two key studies on this that some of our listeners have probably seen. One was a study in a restaurant in China where just the movement of the air conditioning system transferred uh, enough viral particles from one carrier to infect a bunch of other people in the restaurant, but only the people who were sitting directly downwind. And then there was another study from a call center in South Korea, an open plan office, where a bunch of people on one side of the floor were infected. And, but in other parts of the building, very few people were infected, even though they shared the same elevators and, and cafeteria and whatnot. So that really drove home to a lot of people that this is an illness that passes in enclosed spaces. And we have these super spreader events, such as funerals, church services, uh, apres, ski bars, meat packing plants, where people are close together. Perhaps they're physically active or they're emotional for uh, periods of time. Yeah, again, all this is still preliminary, but it's all adding up to a takeaway that that a lot of things we're used to, a lot of ways of living and, and getting together for work or pleasure, they're going to be more difficult. So that leads us to lesson two. It's going to be way harder to reopen the economy than we imagined. Yeah, it's now becoming clear, and it's something we didn't know in March, that COVID-19 is the worst crisis to face us since World War II. The assumption that we're going to have a quick recovery with a nice bounce back looks much less likely than it did before. And and I've changed my mind actually on on debt. Before I was worried that if we racked up too much government debt, that that would be more difficult to pay back in the future. But but right now, this crisis is so enormous that we need the government to spend money to get us out of the hole. The government should be throwing money at us. Uh, not to do so could lead to a much deeper depression. I actually totally agree with that. But I want to rewind and push back big time on the idea this is the worst crisis to face the world since World War II. I mean, you were at the fall of the Berlin Wall, Richard. You should remember the Cold War when two halves of the world were at the brink of nuclear war for a long time. So we've been through a lot before. This is bad, but I don't think it's quite Cuban Missile Crisis or Vietnam War bad. I'll have to disagree. But that's kind of a side point. On this issue of how do we, how do we spread this money around, I, I'm with you on this, and I think that it has to be done. There's going to be a lot of messiness. There's going to be money going to people that when we look back, it's like, oh, why did that group get it instead of this group? You know, sadly, it's often hard for the smaller business, minority businesses to get their hands on the funds, whereas the big, well-connected chain restaurants or whatever seem to be able to step right up. That's kind of partly the nature of these kinds of programs when they're thrown together so quickly. But it does have to be done. I agree. I do want to make sure that this doesn't become a blank check for all kinds of states and other institutions that have been running what I would call flawed business models to get kind of a get out of jail free card. For example, there are certain states like Illinois or to a lesser extent, California, that have wildly overpromised their retirees from the various unions that have government jobs, these extremely deluxe retirement packages, which they simply don't have the money to pay for. Other states have been extremely careful about not doing that. And 
Should residents of states that have done a good job automatically just bail out these other states? It depends on how you define uh good states or responsible state spending, because states with large populations and big cities are more likely to be in financial trouble, but they're less likely to be getting back from the federal government what they put in. They get fewer federal contracts, fewer grants, less federal assistance than most rural states do. Yeah. So it's it's complicated. Well, you know, they tend to be where the rich people live. If you're arguing for less taxes on rich people uh, and- Well, no, but they're also, where the, they're also where the the poor people live too. But the money somebody gets back from the government shouldn't have anything to do with their pension plans. That's a state responsibility to fund the plans, not to just wait for Uncle Sam to come along and sprinkle some fairy dust over over bad planning. Which brings us conveniently to uh, number three, which is about different parts of the country and how COVID will affect them in surprising ways. To me, this lesson is cars and suburbs are here to stay. You know, we've watched so many people over the last 10 or 15 years looking for alternatives to the car, new types of, of mass transit. Also, you know, this idea that millennials aren't going to want to live in boring suburbs, they're going to want to live in these thriving, dense, exciting cities. Well, the pandemic kind of puts an end to a lot of that. In fact, you know, a lot of millennials were moving away from cities like San Francisco and New York even before this happened. As the owner of an apartment in New York City, I, I am now reluctantly accepting that my property all of a sudden is worth considerably less than it was just a few months ago. So that's a bit of a shock for me personally. But it may be an opportunity, actually, for people who had thought the cities were too expensive to live in to come back. So I think the future of places, high-rise places like New York and, and heavily populated cities such as San Francisco, Francisco are very much up for grabs. Well, we've certainly seen predictions in the past that it was, you know, the end of the city and then they've bounced back, particularly in New York after 9-11. But one big change this time is every big business they can do so has sent their workers home. They've gotten much better at working from home. A lot of them do not want to bring those employees back into their expensive office towers. So even if people might want to live in the city, a lot of businesses are going to have fewer employees in the city. And Jim, here's a fascinating statistic from, from Stanford University. Before COVID struck, only 2% of American workers were working full-time from home. And now the number is something like 25 to 30%. So you're absolutely right. But, but, the, but the precise implications of this are yet to be known, which brings us to a safer prediction, number four, Get ready for the higher education blowback. Yeah. So I just wrote a piece on this for the New York Post. We are seeing about 10% of college-bound seniors are now saying they're probably not going to school this fall. Some are reconsidering whether they want to go at all. Something like a quarter of current college students say they're not sure they want to go back next year. Parents are saying they want their kids to go to less expensive schools, closer to home. So the whole business model of college, which I argue has gotten bloated and overpriced, it was already under pressure. This is going to really expose the the weaker schools out there, the weaker programs. And people are going to ask much tougher questions about what they're actually paying for. 
It's also going to expose some of the stronger schools because of the enormous loss of revenue from the NCAA and other big money sports organizations. That money will not be going to some big state schools in the way that it was before. Yeah. And I think a lot of students and their families are going to ask for what alternatives can you give me? Maybe we should be learning online part of the time, classroom part of the time. Maybe I shouldn't be spending four years in school. Maybe there's a way to speed that up, make it less expensive. And am I actually getting a degree that helps me make a good living? Because too many people aren't. Totally agree with just one thought. People who have some form of degree are much more likely to come out of the COVID crisis with a job and and that if people are going to work from home more, if it's going to be more of an online world, then education is still crucial, vital. Edu- education works great for some people, typically people who went into it with a pretty good from pretty good economic background. It works pretty poorly for others. You know, about 40 percent of people who attend college never even graduate. So they get the debt. They waste a lot of years and um, and their incomes don't go up. If you don't have the degree, your income doesn't go up much at all from from college. The one area that you and I really do agree on is higher education needs to be more efficient. So we've got to uh, the end of our first four points. The next three coming up, it's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we head back to our fifth surprise, a recommendation. I've been following something called Weave, the social fabric project and weaving community on social media. There's also a website with a bunch of interesting articles. And the mission statement of Weave says at a time of distrust and deep divisions, it's an attempt to boost the efforts of people across the country who are quietly working to end loneliness and isolation and weave inclusive local communities. If you're interested, search Weave, the social fabric project, to learn more about it. Number five, Richard, is your formulation you say we've been arguing about right versus left when the debate should be smart versus stupid. Never before has the case for government efficiency been as vital as it is now. While the response from the federal government in many respects, especially the White House, has been erratic, we've seen governors of both parties, for instance, Charlie Baker and Mike DeWine, who are both Republicans, and Andrew Cuomo and Jay Inslee of Washington State, be bipartisan examples of state leaders who've 
sometimes been well ahead of the curve and have led effectively during this moment of crisis? I'm going to push back on this one. Andrew Cuomo has presided over the world's worst outbreak of coronavirus and the indecision, the the lack of, of willingness to move quickly to, to close schools and, and businesses. In the early phases of this, when New York was hit harder than any other region, and yet we were behind other regions when it came to to closing down. And I agree it, that in the first two weeks of the of the crisis that, that uh, Cuomo and other leaders uh, in other states were slow to react. So was the White House for that matter. But but in the past month and a half, uh, Andrew Cuomo has been very much on top of it and has been someone who I admire for how he's dealt with the public messaging on this. He was still sending coronavirus patients back to nursing homes up to about a week ago. And that has turned out to be our biggest trans- mode of transmission. I'm sure that I'm sure that he made mistakes and, and that all leaders will make mistakes. But I do think there have been some things that he's done right. I don't mean to pick on Cuomo. This is actually really hard to do well. You know, sending p- people with COVID back to nursing homes might have seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, Nobody had really good game plans on this, but some other countries have done particularly good jobs. Maybe we really want to get lessons. We should be looking at some of those. I know, Richard, you've made a bit of a study of this. Yeah. One example is Taiwan. We did a whole episode on this, Jim, with Samson Ellis. Also, other examples are Germany with Angela Merkel, um, like the leader of Taiwan. She's a scientist by training. Uh, Strong leaders have taken unpopular, difficult decisions, including travel bans. Australia was among the first. So was Taiwan and and also the U.S. Some of those travel bans may have been much more effective than, than many people were willing to admit at beginning. And then we've seen examples of empathy from overseas. One is Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who acted early and forcefully. Her government imposed a strict lockdown, and New Zealand has a lot more coronavirus tests in the U.S., and one-fiftieth the number of deaths there are here. But it's not just the lockdown. It's also Ardern's style. She speaks with empathy and shared details of her personal lockdown on social media. She came across as genuine and caring. Her message is determined, but it's also positive. Consistent messaging and expressions of empathy, but not excessive over-promising that everything's going to be okay. If you look at the weak responses, I think that this is probably one of the biggest failings of of Trump and the White House, is this kind of inconsistent messaging that veers from too much happy talk to to maybe too scary. And I think people can handle pretty scary news, but it needs to be delivered in an honest, straightforward way that unfortunately is not doesn't come naturally for politicians. In most cases, they'd probably be better off stepping back and letting the epidemiologists and the experts really take the lead in communicating with the public. Let's go to surprise number six. And this really was a surprise for me. And that's that we need the military more than ever. In a couple of interviews, Bill Gates has talked about his notion of what we need, which isn't the military per se, but a military approach to planning for pandemics and other global crises, much the way we plan for war. You know, we don't wait for the war to start to start manufacturing tanks and bullets. We have stockpiles and and we spend a lot of money on that. Why don't we have stockpiles of the 
the supplies that we need. And instead of scrambling to improvise at the last minute to be prepared for these uh, these kinds of outbreaks, it's not like this is a total surprise that this could happen. I've done podcast interviews in the past couple of days with Admiral James Stravitas, uh, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, and also retired uh, Army General Wesley Clark, and both made a powerful case for why public health needs to have the same priority as we've made for the military, that our health defenses are a vital national interest and that we need uh, good health planning exercises. And, and, you know, the military has tremendous expertise on this. Yeah. And it's not like the CDC and other groups didn't have various plans and didn't didn't do some of these exercises. But when it really came down to it, you know, these big bureaucracies, they pull in a lot of different directions at once. At times, it seemed like, you know, the CDC rules and the FDA rules actually slowed down the rollout of, of, te- of tests and rules that might have made sense in the equivalent of peacetime, but didn't make any sense, you know, in, in the crisis that made it harder for PPE materials to be delivered. And do you know what the CDC's biggest public facing effort was last year that got the most, at least that got the most news attention and attention on on Capitol Hill? In October, when probably this disease was first starting to spread in China, the CDC was all in on fighting the great menace of vaping. Their deputy director made three appearances at crucial hearings on Capitol Hill about this crisis of vaping, which turned out to be a big nothing. It's actually so much safer than cigarettes. And yet these organizations like the CDC, we set up, we hope they're going to be really competent. They're going to focus on the most important things. And then mission creep sets in. So here's my typical note of a little bit of pessimism. We can plan for all kinds of things. It doesn't mean that the agencies we set up will always pursue them any more than our military planning means that our military always gets the biggest bang for its buck and, and, you know, spends its money efficiently. There's a lot of waste in these big bureaucracies. We need them, but we should never be overconfident that they're actually working very well. And yet there are examples of of government success, and perhaps the best one is the Federal Reserve, which has acted quickly and decisively to save the financial system and learned the lessons of the last great financial crisis in 2008, planned ahead for the next one, and by most accounts has, has executed successfully, at least so far. Now to our seventh and final surprise. We will all be asked to sacrifice. Yes, the essence of citizenship may well be redefined. And I don't think it's something that I've thought about a lot in the past, that many of us may volunteer more and that there may be a stronger sense of of sacrifice and of the need for national service. I'd sure like to see uh, organizations like AmeriCorps get a lot more support than they have done now. Um, I think there are a great number of things that uh, that we may have to consider. For instance, and this won't be popular with you, Jim, at all, but we've got to pay for that massive federal government debt somehow. Businesses and individuals, all of us, uh, not just the wealthy, may be asked, may be needed for higher taxes to pay for things. Once you write a check, you have to pay it. So the day may come when we need higher taxes. I'd be more comfortable with that if I didn't feel like there were so many areas of the government where there's still massive amounts of of, of waste. And 
you know, we have a presidential candidate who's arguing to vastly increase the federal spending on on health care and other plans. So I'm I'm um, I'm not as sanguine that we're all just going to pay a little more and everything's going to be kumbaya. I, I think we could be heading into an era of of great political conflict. I think that we definitely need a universal health care system. The idea that people uh, died or got coronavirus much more seriously because they didn't have any link to a local doctor or were frightened about the expense of going to the doctor is is very disturbing to me. And also, I think we're going to need some form of, of paid medical leave for all workers, again, because if there is another pandemic or health emergency, we don't want people showing up for work or we're sick. People working sick is a huge problem, uh, and I think you know we see that a lot, especially in more lower income positions. the The argument for universal health care is going to be very, very compelling. I still think it's wrong. I think if you look around the world, I think some countries with uh, universal health care did really well, and some did terribly. I think when we get right down to it, we do want people to feel comfortable going to the doctor. We do want people feel comfortable getting tested. There should probably be subsidies to just make testing really cheap and 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 accessible, but the leap from there to, to universal health care is one that I think it would require an entire different show and, and maybe some experts who can really get into it in more depth than you and I can. I think we will do exactly that in, in at least one or two future episodes. Uh, we'll revisit the whole question of health care. So all of our listeners who love hearing you and me <laughs> snipe at each other over these policies, you get to hear much more of that in the months to come. <laughs> Stay tuned. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content, a podcast firm that makes podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 